In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakou, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books. Uh, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Friday's show. We won't have a show Monday because of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. The name of the book is Gut by Julia Enders. Gut, the inside story of our body's most underrated organ. And I uh, got this book recommended by some very reputable people to check out related to um, how important the gut is, our stomach, and uh, in variety of things, but including our mental health. And we hear it in things like go with your gut, gut instinct, gut feelings. And it's not just uh, types of language or idioms that we use. It actually has a lot of truth to it that our gut plays a big part in our feelings, even things like depression and anxiety. So I'm looking forward to reading this book and discussing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about today is Curious Minds by Perry Zern and Danny S. Bassett. Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. And uh, the title I loved, Curious Minds, and I've read a few books related to uh, curiosity and trying to understand this concept. And, And this one was like those in some ways, but also very different, even in the ways that it was written uh, there was definitely a style that they had in there. Identical twins uh, writing this book together, um, bringing from different fields that they've studied themselves, looking at curiosity, but also a different perspective on curiosity and what it even means. And that theme runs through the book of what does curiosity mean in the last chapter, going through different types of words related, uh, definitions of the word crack and how it relates to it. Um, but trying to understand what curiosity is, of course, like anything, we have to know what it is to study it. And many of us might think we know what it is, but they provide a different type of context or definition. So the standard curious mind or curiosity that we tend to think of is someone who wants to get information, take things in. I want to know everything, um, understand things, but really it's about acquiring these nodes or these pieces of information That's what we think of as curious or curiosity often. But here, as the subtitle suggests, The Power of Connection, the authors are looking at curiosity more as something that connects things, so the spaces between things, rather than the things themselves necessarily, or it would include both. So looking at the edges rather than the nodes. And that's a theme that is, to me, one of the main arguments they make in the book is about this looking at curiosity in this way Uh, and it does make sense even understanding the connections of things is part of what it means to understand things and the interconnectedness of everything that is a a, definitely a critical aspect of what curiosity could mean 
And so related to that and these different definitions or aspects of, of curiosity, they also present three um, prototypes or caricatures of curiosity or three ways that we might uh, experience curiosity or express curiosity. So this is kind of like when we call people introverts or extroverts, that no one is going to be purely one or the other. But you might find that you have one of these three styles of curiosity might define you more. So the first one they have is the busybody. And that's essentially what we maybe think of as an older version of curiosity of just someone who's just looking at everything and wants to know a bit about all things. So they might not know a lot about any one topic, but they might be someone who is just open to looking at a variety of things that might seem very different and just jumping from one to another. So that's the busybody. The next one is the hunter. And so the hunter is one who might find one topic that they're really interested and curious about and just deep dive into that. So they might be obsessional about learning about one topic or one field or things very that might be related, but within a narrow range. The, that's the hunter. And the last one is the dancer. And they might take big jumps and leaps, weaving things together, understanding a variety of things, and also um, bringing them together in some way. And they're not explicit, but I guess they're not really hiding it, that I get the sense they think the dancer is the best, the better model of how to be when it comes to, to curiosity. They're, they do seem to make the busybody not look so good, very shallow in a way, and the dancer has more depth to it. But again, none of us is going to be just one of these things. At different times, we might express our curiosity in different ways, and different situations might call for that. You might be working on some research paper and where you need to have a little bit more of the hunter. Maybe it'll be good to have some creativity and have the dancer there as well, but the hunter might be needed even more. So they present these three different styles, almost like personality type characteristics about curiosity. Now, as they, as I said, the main argument in my perspective was conceptualizing curiosity as something that connects or is about the connections. And they make an interesting connection with how the brain works. And so our brain is this incredibly intricate set of uh, estimates of 80 billion neurons that somehow dance together and work together to create our life experience and all the feelings and thoughts, ideas, and the curiosity, and even what we do with that curiosity. All that comes from this incredibly intricate set of 80 billion neurons that work together in some way. And it's about those connections really that makes our brain work. At points they talked about the brain as these modules which um, I've heard and read neuroscientists go against that notion of thinking of it in that way that this is the you know the place for this and this is this part of the brain and that part of the brain. It does seem like some parts of the brain get activated more for certain things but um, as their theme of interconnectedness would imply that's also how the brain tends to work is that it's about the ways things coordinate together not just um, each part does one thing uh, so nonetheless coming back to this connection to curiosity there is this way that how we add to knowledge and understanding can flow in a similar way or does flow in a similar way to how the brain works in these interconnected types of 
uh, fashions. And so that was an interesting analogy for me and one that we can keep in mind when we're trying to understand how to get the most out of the world as far as knowledge and understanding goes. Something that they also talk about is that there's constraints that are put by the way we acquire knowledge, things like the institutions of knowledge, the communities of knowledge, or scientists, things of that sort, that we might not realize create constraints. And so they bring up that often some voices are going to get left out or be underrepresented in our understanding of the world. Things like individuals who are uh, disabled, of course women even throughout history and still, um, people from sexual minorities, different groups, their voices might not be heard, might not be considered as important, or even from ethnic minorities. For many years when we thought of literature, people just thought of white writers as contributing to literature and they share stories of individuals in those fields who were told those things that, for example, studying writers from this type of background or this heritage, that's not quite literature. That wouldn't be something academic because it wasn't part of the field. So if we think of knowledge as connecting and the interconnections creates how we understand things, then the more nodes or the more points that we have, the more we get to learn and understand about the world. And the more we limit who gets to contribute to the conversation, the more we are limited in what we get to learn and understand. So that was a point they also made in various parts of the book, looking at this way that certain people, certain groups are underrepresented and how that is, well, first of all, I would just say unfair and unjust, but also it limits our understanding in ways that we might not even recognize when we have biases and ways of seeing something. We usually can't recognize that until someone sheds a light on that, and sometimes that's a force from the outside. In this case, people who have been left out, who should have been put into the conversation, but often that's how we recognize the limits to our thinking, that we're not even aware there's something that we don't know. Uh, there's also a section of the book I enjoyed where was looking at, uh, you know, I talk a lot about balance on the show because I think it's so related to so many issues and just in being a human being, finding all these different balances that we have to navigate in our lives. But in flexibility versus having constraints or having some kind of structure, which is always so necessary uh, to find that balance and it's not easy. So even let's say as a parent, you're creating some boundaries for your kids. The challenge is how do I create boundaries that are there, there's some structure there, but also flexible enough to withstand what happens in life and to not be overly rigid. And you can go too far either way. Be too rigid or be too permissive. You have a front door, you can let no one in, that's not good, or you let everyone in, that's not good either. The door is there to serve as some kind of barrier, some kind of structure. And so even in the ways that we add to knowledge or understand things, there has to be space to challenge what's there. But there has to be something there as well. There has to be some understanding, some ways of thinking that we start with. But we can't make them so impermeable that nothing ever changes. Then it could be overly rigid. And so we can see this, for example, if someone says, well, this is the way we think about this, or this is um, science's final answer, which is never really the case. Science is always a ongoing process. So we have the best of our understanding up to this point, or what we how we understand things at this point, but it's never a finished conversation. It's always an ongoing dialogue. And so we have to have some 
flexibility to always add to what is going on, but that would mean that the people who have whatever the power is, and even in science and knowledge, there is people who have more power, institutions, even individuals, they have to have that flexibility to hear something different, something contrary to what they think and what they understand. And so this book, Curious Minds, by Perry Zern and Danny S. Bassett, um, as I mentioned, was written in a way that also was a bit different because they also talked about creativity. And when we talk about connections uh, and interconnectedness, creativity is essentially nothing other than the combination of two things that haven't been combined before or haven't com been combined combined in some type of way. So it's also it's all about interconnectedness, making those connections. And we have to have that ability to hear the flexibility to combine things. Often it won't work, it won't be successful, it won't be good, it won't even be progress. But we have to allow for those things to happen and sometimes get it wrong and fail and, and fall on our faces or the ideas fall on their face in order to find new things that are also good and beneficial and move things forward. And even in that sense, sometimes we think that anything we learn has to have some tangible outcome to it that we should put money into research that we know will have some kind of effect where we can measure the effect. But often when we try to understand what's going on in the world or just understand things, that itself has some value. And we can see that the way we tend to work, we often have curiosity that isn't just about getting some result itself. The process is a result. How good does it feel when you understand something or, or know something um, that you did not know before. It always is a very good feeling. So curiosity itself has some type of way of benefiting us or having a benefit to us. Uh, so I, yeah, I did enjoy this book. I didn't expect it to be the way that it was, uh, looking at curiosity in this way, but this way of thinking of curiosity, not about just collecting knowledge, collecting bits of information, to me makes a lot of sense. And I think it was the way I tended to think of curiosity in some ways, but the interconnected part of it to me was quite fascinating. So that was Curious Minds by Perry Zern and Danny S. Bassett. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hambra, you're on the air. Uh, good afternoon, good, sir. Good afternoon. Uh, I, I had a question. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to know how do you define uh, happiness mm -hmm. and how, how can one obtain true happiness? Because there are some superficial happiness, yeah. like owning a beautiful car. Mm -hmm. you, when, when you obtain it, then you realize after a while that you didn't really get the true happiness through yeah. the car. Yeah, well, let me ask you, I, I definitely have a lot of thoughts on this. I think it's a, a fascinating topic. How would you how would you define it? Well, I believe that for me, I have to first know the world around me, mm -hmm. what it is, mm -hmm. the environment that I live in, and my own capabilities, my own abilities, and my own perso personal understanding of my own self. And then how I coexist with the environment around me. If I can have a peaceful coexistence, then I think that's true happiness to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something you said there, then, that peaceful 
coexistence, which um, I think is relevant to what I'll, I'll definitely bring up related to being content. Because you asked, like, how would you define happiness? And so we assume we all agree on that term a lot of times. We think, well, and, and a lot of people say, well, everyone wants to be happier. The point of life is to be happy. And we, we say that a lot, but often we don't tend to recognize that words, of course, we say them so we can communicate and to, to say something we are thinking and we mean or we feel, but it doesn't mean we all think and feel the same things when we hear a word or we're talking about a word. So um, for me, the way I define happiness, first, I can say some of the things that I don't think it is. Um, like you said, those shorter term types of experiences we have, let's say if you buy a car or have a pleasurable experience, we can have things like joy or pleasure, which can be different but related things like joy, a, a positive experience that makes us feel good or a, a, a euphoric type of a feeling, like it could give us joy. Pleasure could be a thing that gives us a more physical type of good feeling, something that we, let's say, good food or um, uh, hugging a friend or something like that might give us that momentary feeling of pleasure. When I think of happiness and what I think we should be aiming for is not a short-term type of a feeling, but it's a long-term type of a feeling of fulfillment and contentment. And so even, you know, you said true happiness, and I think you, you meant it in a certain way, I'm sure, but I think when we look at even what we're trying to have in our lives, when we say true, we want it to be something that's realistic and not idealized. Because if we assume, for example, true happiness or the happiness I should be having or want in my life is one where I always feel good all the time, then we are inevitably going to be very disappointed with our lives and with ourselves and feeling bad about both of those things. We're not feeling good about how we are doing in our life and how life has been to us. So our expectations are very important when it comes to anything we experience. Same thing with our relationships. If you assume I want to be in a relationship where every day is like a fairy tale and the romance and the passion is always high and there's no fighting and there's no disagreements and it just feels good all the time. Well, then when you enter a real relationship, you're inevitably going to be disappointed and you could think I have an unhappy relationship, an unhappy marriage because your definition of what was happy was unrealistic. It was something that is unattainable. So, Doctor, yes. may, I, may I interject for sure. a second, please? Uh, your father truly says that, uh, and I, I, I admire him for saying that, and that is, uh, I should not expect anything in this life. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. You know, those things about expectations, um, I, I think they can get us into a lot of trouble. Absolutely. And people will see that in their relationships, their expectations can get them in a lot of trouble. However, I think it's unrealistic to think we'll have no expectations. So I see it as something aspirational to understand what's happening. And actually what I say is not to have no expectations and O but to know your expectations, K-N-O-W, to know the ones that you have, because inevitably, inevitably we have them when, when we look at our lives and when things are happening. We do get in trouble, for example, in what you're saying, my father is saying, or at least if I, I'll put my spin on it because I don't I, want to I say... Hope, I hope I, I quoted him correctly. No, no, I mean, I, I think you did. And regardless, we'll, you know, I'll kind of put my own words on it anyway because we can't uh, speak for him um, but we do get in a lot of trouble when we put expectations on life 
that are unrealistic or we expect for example that people should only be nice to me or this should happen or nothing bad should happen to me so we do at times have these expectations and it's important to be aware of them because they will make us unhappy if we assume things that are unrealistic and that we shouldn't expect and the first step to me is to know them k-n-o-w because you might not even realize you have them till it happens you're like oh yeah i guess i expected that you know everyone at this party would be really nice to me and when they weren't i left very upset but maybe i shouldn't have had that expectation to begin with so it made me feel like i had a bad time or that something was not good there so when we look at our life, we do have to be realistic of what we're going to um, experience okay. in life. Yeah. And so when I think of happiness, when I say contentment, that's more of this longer lasting feeling. Like you said, you buy a car, you're going to feel good for a while. Depends on how nice the car is and how much you wanted it. But still, we know that's not going to sustain you and make you feel content about life overall. And so when we want to feel that contentment, it means we're living a life we look at and feel good about what we've done. A key aspect of understanding happiness or when we look at human happiness is the quality of our relationships. So when you, there's some big studies, one that was done in the Harvard Boston area that spanned many decades and is ongoing. And the first sentence of that paper, one of the papers they released was happiness is love being, being very, uh, to the point, and of course, you're always going to be missing a lot of details when you're that short, but to really emphasize that the things that led to long-term happiness were the qualities of the relationships that these people had. How close were they to people? And, and emphasis on quality, not quantity. So you can have 5 million Instagram followers and you can have 10,000 Facebook friends, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have good relationships or you or have a good quality of relationships. So somebody's even say, for example, how many people could you call in the middle of the night or how many people could you call if you really needed to talk to someone? And that number can give us a sense of the quality of the relationships that you have. And actually very often when people are asked that question, one of the more common answers is zero. They don't know who they would call if they were in a bad situation or if they needed some help emotionally, physically, in some tangible way. So the quality of our relationships, yes. Yeah. Uh, can, can I say that, for instance, uh, happiness, true happiness, mm -hmm. is in, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Okay. Uh, can I say self-actualization is can be defined as if one attains that that level of understanding uh, can be defined as true happiness self actualization yes and it, I, I would have a lot to agree with in that comment because even if you look at it when someone says self actualizing it's essentially just by the definition we're trying to say you're expressing the human potential at its highest so of course that would seem like the highest level we can go to. How you're going to express or define that is going to be a little bit hard, but I think, yes, in the hierarchy of needs, and if Maslow himself didn't make it a pyramid, that was later on done in that way by some, I think it was like a management textbook or something, um, made it into an actual pyramid that way. He himself never wrote it that way. There's a book called Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman that talks about this um, and, and topics related to it. But yeah, I do think that there's something about that we want to strive towards that sense of expressing, we can call it our higher self in some ways, but when I say higher, it means we take care of the physical 
needs that we need. There we have the safety needs, other types of needs that he talks about. But on top of that, now we're doing things that are expressing our full potential as far as what we can contribute. And to me, that's actually one of the main ways I would define happiness is let me just finish that thought for let me just finish that thought for a second yeah so when we look at happiness is how much are we contributing to the world and to people around us of course we're taking care of ourselves and that's even if we look at the hierarchy of course we're okay but how much am i giving to the world and people who have self-actualized are people who are contributing from themselves from their own gifts talents abilities in a way that feels very good in a long-term type of a way but but go ahead i just, i just want uh, you uh, you answer my question i think this this discussion can go for a long time uh, of course I, I appreciate your help okay uh, sure my last question is uh, farsi is a very sweet language yeah i i, I attend a lot of knowledge uh, through um, rumi's work mm-hmm uh, through in Persian in Farsi, mm-hmm. because Rumi wrote six books, and there about each one of them when when I bought them and I read them, they were about inch and a half thick. Mm-hmm. Each one, some of them were two inch thick. Uh, anyway, uh, Rumi believed. Well, some, some, some other time we can talk about Rumi, but today I think I've, I've, I've asked enough questions. Okay. Thank well, you so much. That's fine. Thank you for calling. Have a good day. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless you. Okay. So, you know, just to, you know, as I was saying about contributing something, um, what I find interesting, I was thinking today, I saw this video with, it was showing some athletes, maybe no surprise there, fathers with their kids, it was, it was all basketball players, um, and their experiences with their kids and and there even was some voiceover and they're talking about doing things for their children and so when people talk about their most meaningful relationships of course as i said who can i count on who can i call Uh, that can feel very important very good and we need that even if we going back to the hierarchy am i taken care of am i okay but when we see people at their happiest when we see the longer term more meaningful type of happiness it tends to be in the giving and when I was seeing these exchanges between the kids and their their fathers it was clear that the relationship that felt so good for them these fathers was one where they were giving and of course it's true for any parent but the ones where they were giving more right when you're in a um, parent-child relationship I shouldn't even say giving more it's almost exclusively giving of course you feel good and you get all these nice feelings but that's the after effect of what happens in the exchange that you are taking care of and giving to this child and that was the one that feels the most good for most people when you ask them there's something very special about that and so if we look at what will make us feel good when we think of true happiness the reason why i think it could be important to look at the expectations and understandings of it because if we think of it as just about feeling good then it is about having the nice car, having the nice experience, the nice food, even maybe a drug, whatever it is that feels good in the moment. If we chase that momentary pleasure or the joyful experience, we tend to lead a life that will feel very empty because the things that we really will value won't be there. 
But if we make sure we're taken care of, so it will include having pleasures and joys. It doesn't mean it's a joyless life, of course, that I would encourage us to live. But if we take care of those things and have them, but then we have something that to me is even higher and transcends that, which is what we can give and have the more meaningful experiences in those ways, that's where we tend to see the longer term fulfillment and contentment that I think we should strive towards. And when we think of happiness just as a type of a feeling, to me it's very overrated. I'm much more in favor of striving for contentment and fulfillment in our lives. Those are the things I can just imagine someone sitting back and looking at their life and feeling good about it. Doesn't mean they only experience good things. There's going to be heartbreaks and heartaches in their life and pains and things that they went through. But they feel that they've lived a life that they feel good about. They feel content about. And the reason why it's important to think about these things is that if we don't deliberately and with intention live our lives, we tend to be drawn towards the wrong things because we'll go towards things that feel good in the moment, things that are decided by other people, whether it's society and culture or our families and parents. We won't live a life that is the one that we want to live and will be good for us in the long term unless we think about it. And often when people have a midlife crisis, obviously has the word crisis in it, which doesn't feel good or sound good, but it's often a recognition that I should take a look at my life a little bit more seriously and how I'm living it because is it the type of life I want to live and would want to live if I look back on it? And if it's not, of course, it's this sad feeling that I've lost a lot of this time, this potential, maybe I can't even do so many things I wish I had done, but it can also be this recognition of what can I do with the time I have left so that I won't regret it. And so I do encourage all of us to think about these things. I, I've talked recently about New Year's goals and resolutions and those things. And I think it can be good to reflect on our life and create goals, but also to create values. And what are the values and things that I want to live my life with to strive towards that longer term, true type of happiness, true as in genuine, which is more to me like a contentment and a fulfilling feeling rather than a smiling, happy, joyous feeling. There will be, there will be that in a good life and a happy life. Uh, but to me, if we avoid the pain, you actually can't live a good life. So to me, you can't live a happy life unless you are willing to be sad and mad and all the feelings that don't feel good in the moment. Because the only way to create meaningful things and especially meaningful relationships is to face and embrace those feelings that don't feel good. But if we think of happiness as whatever makes me smile in the moment, we'll go towards those momentary pleasures and we'll avoid the lasting growth pains that we need to go through to live a more fulfilling life. So thank you to the caller for that question. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to come back to uh, the book, but a related topic to the book. So I talked about Curious Minds today by Perry Zern and Danny S. Bassett. And curiosity is a quality I think we all hope to keep and cultivate throughout our lives of wanting to not just know more, as I was saying, the older types of definition of curiosity of just collecting facts, but try to understand things. So know the whys and the what's and the hows and try to understand the world better and the world around us better. But of course, there's curiosity in a variety of different aspects of life too, not just trying to gather information and understand the world, but to better understand ourselves 
and those around us. And so that's where I wanted to turn the conversation to now. And before I even get there, it's in trying to understand what does curiosity mean or what will facilitate our curiosity. So the word why is a a powerful one, like any word, it can have multiple types of meanings, and also how we say it and how we use it can make it very different. Because when you think of curiosity, one of the things that might come up, there's like the what's, but also why. And so when we're trying to understand something better, and especially when we're trying to understand someone better, because this happens a lot in relationships, that word why can be very, very good and sometimes very bad. As a therapist, we're actually, uh, I remember learning in graduate school and hearing it a variety of times that the word why is one we should not use. Now you might ask why? Well, the reason why is that it could come off judgmental or it could sound like you're questioning someone. So if someone says, I feel sad and you say why? It can sound like you're saying you shouldn't be, or I'm surprised you are, or you're judging them for that. Now, the truth is you might not be, but that's what we were taught and told was that it can sound that way. So you might find other ways of saying it. So instead of saying why, you might say, what might make you feel that way, or what's making it that way, or things like that. And I think, of course, it's like censoring any word. When you usually do it, it's not helpful and backfires and just it seems inauthentic. I think the mindset of it is more important than the specific word why. So I don't think you shouldn't say why, but it is something to be mindful of and aware that when you're asking someone questions about themselves, especially about sensitive types of things, we do want to be aware of how we ask the questions could affect how they feel and how comfortable they're going to feel opening up and sharing and exploring themselves because uh, me to me therapy is much less about fixing specific problems and much more about self-awareness and understanding so someone coming to therapy often they are coming in because of some specific issue or problem or set of problems or just they're feeling really bad or depressed or anxious but really what we're doing is we're trying to be curious about them So whoever's coming in, it's an exploration of that person. So we're curious about them, trying to understand it better. And that's always going to be the starting point is being curious. Now, what we're going to do with what we find, that's a different story. So let's just say we're doing an x-ray on someone. The x-ray is not having judgments about you want it to be this way. It should be this way. We want to just see what's there first. Just let's understand it. We take the x-ray. Now we see, oh, there's a break in this bone we might take some action. So we're not saying it's necessarily even good that it should be that way. But at first, to really allow for things to come to light, like in an x-ray, we have to be open to seeing whatever is there and try to understand it and see it it and understand it first. So there is a why that's judgmental and a why that is curious. And you can probably hear and feel the difference or have felt it from people before. So someone, you tell someone, oh, I'm doing this tomorrow and say, why? You know, even the tone, I said it there, I'm like, you shouldn't do that. Or why would you do that? Or you're crazy or whatever else might be there that makes us not feel good. There, and then there could be like, I'm doing this tomorrow. Oh, why? I want to know what's going on. What are you doing? Why, you know, why do you want to do that thing in a way to understand it, not to judge it or criticize it? So the first one feels like judgment and criticism. And the second one sounds more like, or the 
intent is I want to understand you better because I'd like to know more about you. And this is something I hear a lot from parents. They say, I want to know about my kid's life. They don't tell me anything, especially in the teenage years. Well, the first thing is, as a teenager, they should be telling you less about their life. That tends to be the case. doesn't mean nothing. I don't mean they're not going to tell you anything. But there's going to be some more closing off to a degree. One, the things they're dealing with might feel more private to them than they did when they were a kid. Two, they're turning to their peers more. Um, And three, they're worried about your judgment. And that's the part that's most in your control. And now this doesn't mean whatever they do, you say it's okay, or you try to be that super cool parent that um, doesn't say anything about anything. But you have to be aware that how we respond to what they tell us is very important. So I work with parents and they tell me about, you know, I tell my kid, tell me anything, even if you get an F, even if you do this thing or that thing, whatever it is, you can tell me. And as soon as the kid tells them something like that, they go off on them and they're putting, getting them in trouble or, you know, yelling at them or whatever it might be. And so, yes, you were saying you can tell me anything, but not in the sense that it's going to be okay and we can deal with it, but in the sense that I want to know. So it's more about you knowing than allowing the other person to be understood and heard. And that's also a critical part of this sense of, is it either judgment and about me Or is it about, I want to understand you and it's about you. Tell me more about your day, right? So tell me, oh, I did this, this. Oh, really? What did you do there? Okay. And then how was that for you? Oh, cool. Tell me more about this. Or there's, what did you do today? I did this. Why would you do that? You you shouldn't even, you know, you shouldn't be doing this or you should have done this instead. Or why weren't you doing this instead? Or why would you even ever want to do that? I don't get you. That's just about your judgment and about you either maybe wanting to know more or in this case, just judging them rather than I want to understand what is going on for you. And most of the time, most of us are not approaching it with the first sense or the first intention of understanding. And this is why for many people, therapy can be a really nice space to explore because we don't usually give each other that. And so, of course, our conversations are not going to be therapy, nor should they be. But there are some things we can take from this to recognize how we can make our, our conversations and um, through that effect, our relationships better. That I want to understand you. I want to ask questions to understand. And this is why holding that judgment can be so important because as soon as we get judged, it understandably makes us close up a bit or completely. If I feel that what I tell you might be judged and I can be criticized, well, that everything I tell you feels like a risk. I'm opening myself up to get hurt. So if I tell you about my day or what I did, or especially, let's say, a mistake I made, well, then I'm expecting to get your judgment or I'm anticipating that. Well, I'd rather not tell you. So this is why your teenager might not want to tell you things like, oh, you're going to judge me for it, or you're going to lecture me about it, or you're going to punish me. So I won't tell you those things and I'd rather keep them to myself. So of course, sometimes we lie if we're afraid to tell the truth. That's very true. But another thing we do often is we just withhold things. So where we don't want the truth to come out, we just withhold. And so teenagers with their parents, that's usually the strategy they're using. Of course, the lying happens as well, but they withhold a lot. And so as a parent, you're not going to get them to tell you everything and nor should they. But if you want to have a relationship with them where they can tell you things, you have to be very mindful of your reactions to what they tell you. Am I giving them the space to feel I'm curious to know more, to understand them, to help them understand themselves? Or do I want to know more 
because I want to have the information. I want to potentially judge them or punish them, or I think it's protecting them, but I'm trying to have control over what's happening. I want to control it. And so that's another element of why parents often want to know things about their kids. It's not just an, hey, I want to get to know you better and continue to get to know you. It's that I want to have control. So I need to know what bad things you might be getting up to or doing because I have to protect you or I have to change things or I have to teach you something. And so I need to know in that way. And so in that way, it's also going to feel very intrusive and lead to someone pushing back. So curiosity is something that we will bring to every aspect of life in different ways, but the ways that we approach it can be very different in how the person will respond to that or how they'll want to feel. Even when you're telling a story, they've done research with people where some, they don't know that the listener has been given some kind of instruction. So, so a person is going to tell a story about their life. So tell us a story from high school that was really funny or whatever. It may sometimes it's embarrassing or whatever it is. I don't remember. There's been many studies like this, I'm sure. So I don't know what exactly the, the person telling the story was asked to say. But the recipient was told either to hold a kind of a straight face so they don't react much, so they're not giving them much of a reaction, or to respond with active listening, nodding and smiling and showing that they are interested. And then what they did is they recorded the person telling the story and they have other people listen to the story. So these people don't know how the person was being responded to. They just hear the person telling the story. And what they find is that those people, when they rate the stories, when the person was responded to with the flat face, the stories were shorter, they had less details, they were less animated. Basically, they were worse stories. They weren't as good. They weren't as... Um, um, detailed, they weren't as, uh, you know, emotional, they left a lot out. Whereas when the person was responded to with active positive type of listening, just responses nonverbal, the person told a better story with more details, more emotions, and went longer with the story. So we could see that how we respond is so critical, even in something like just telling a story and how the person will share that story with us. And we've all been there before. You're telling someone a story and they feel bored. Or a common thing people experience now is, oh, they're checking their phone. Well, of course, it makes you less wanting to go on, feeling like they care and they want to hear what you have to say. So you're more likely to stop, shut down, you know, and maybe depending on who it is and how close you are, get upset with them and say something because they don't give you that sense that they're curious in a positive way. They want to understand and know you. So you're going to shut down and not tell them more. So when you're trying to understand someone better, first look at your intention. Is it just I want to judge or criticize or control them in some way? Well, that's not good, and that's itself something to look at. But if you really want to approach with curiosity to understand them better, be very mindful of how you respond. And so if you ask that question, why, be very aware that the why doesn't come off as a judgmental, critical type of a thing. And the why is more of a curious, I want to understand, I want to know you, I want to hear your story type of a way. And you're much more likely to have someone share with you. Now, I say this not in, I know there's these how-tos of, you know, how to get people to talk to you, how to get people to do something. Um, and I actually really dislike those things because usually what it's telling you to do is 
You don't have to have good intentions. Just say the right words or act like you care or act like a good whatever it is, and you'll get what you want. So I don't want to present it at all in that way. I hope what you'll actually hear is the intention is something you want to check. What's my intention when I'm asking someone to tell me more? And if I have a bad intention, it's about judgment, control, uh, my own interests, well, I would encourage you to try to understand that better and go away from that. And if you can go towards, I want to understand you better, I want to make you feel heard and to hear you, that to me is the right intention to have conversations that will cultivate and facilitate our relationships and make them stronger. To have that, I want to understand you rather than I want to judge you, obviously will lead to um, a better relationship. But at times we don't recognize we're in the judgment tract and most of our conversations will go in that way. Now in the next segment, I will look at curiosity towards ourselves. I, I was talking about how therapy is this exploration of the self and how actually being curious to ourself has some of these same themes of judgment, of openness, um, of curiosity, and how we can try to cultivate that as well. So let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. back. So as I was saying before the break, I wanted to continue looking at curiosity about ourselves, which um, when we think about ourselves, these weird types of feelings could come up because we think, for example, I already know myself or I am myself. So it could feel like what is there to know and to explore? But I think as most people might recognize, and especially when you're a therapist, you get to see it in front of your eyes. And just even looking at myself, I can see it all the time that we don't know ourselves even a fraction of how much we think we do. Because there's so much about us that we can't know or that we haven't uh, encountered in some way, so much of us see, stays out of our own perception because of how vast our unconscious is. Now, I've talked before about how our unconscious needs to get a uh, rebranding because we tend to think of unconscious as very dark and it has to be mysterious and these negative things, which is due to how the unconscious was described by Freud, who made huge contributions to the field of psychology and psychiatry and created even new fields, things like psychoanalysis. But the way he presented the unconscious was that it was the seat of our darkest desires, which it, it will include that, but includes everything or so much about us is going to be there. So because he would ask people these questions and get in touch with these parts of themselves that they were keeping hidden and being in the Victorian era, these things seemed very um, sinister and dark, very often about things like sex, desires we don't like to express. So it seemed like our unconscious was this negative and dark thing. So usually when people say unconscious desires or unconscious feelings, we tend to think of bad things, but it's not that. The way I think of our unconscious is like thinking like a library. So our brain is like a library. And at any given time, you might be looking at one book in that library and you're conscious of that book. So you're holding a book and reading it, but there's a whole library of books that are not being looked at at that moment that do exist. And of course, doesn't mean those books are dark and bad. It's just that it's impossible to have so much in your awareness at any given time, or we can only have very little in our awareness when we consider how much we can think about or have stored up in us. So the unconscious doesn't mean dark and bad. 
It just means everything we are not aware of in any given moment of time, which is way more huge. Uh, it's hugely more than whatever we can imagine or think about in a moment. Sometimes we'll see an analogy of an iceberg that just there's a part that you can see above the water and the unconscious is everything underneath. And it's probably many, many more times that magnitude because it's, it's huge how much is in our unconscious, how much we aren't aware of or at least aren't aware of in that moment. So there's unconscious things that you are aware of, but you might not think about in a moment or at that given moment. For example, there's many facts that you know in your brain, but right now you might not be thinking of them. But then if I say, what's the capital of France? And you say, in your mind comes Paris. It was there in your mind, but you weren't thinking about it until I asked the question. But then there's many unknowns in our unconscious, things that we are not aware of or maybe have never encountered consciously. And these can be quite powerful, important in understanding ourselves because there's something that has been there that we don't quite know or understand. Um, this can come at any age, but of course, things that we encountered or experienced when we were very young, very often we never experienced consciously, yet it might have a silent but significant impact on our lives. You were abandoned often or weren't responded to often as a child. You might not remember any of these incidences, and if it was when you were an infant, you, as far as we understand, consciously can't remember any of them. You won't remember, oh yeah, I was thirsty and no one brought me water for a long time or I wanted to be changed and no one came to me for a long time when I was three months old. But those experiences will unconsciously be part of your experience and the way you experience the world where you'll be less likely to feel that people are reliable, that you can trust them. You won't know why, you won't get it, you'll just have a feeling like, oh yeah, I just feel like I can't trust this person or trust you know this or I'm more comfortable this way. You won't know what is there or really even kind of get why, but these things happen to you and they will now impact you. So if you want to be curious about ourselves, the, the caller brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but here we can think of a different type of hierarchy or requirement, but something that we need is that if you want to take a look at anybody, but even if it's yourself, you have to be okay with whatever it is that you see. Now, this is very difficult to say before you've seen it, right? I, you can't say, just like when someone says, hey, uh, if I tell you something, will you keep it to yourself? And like, usually you can say yes, but if they say something extreme, like I'm going to go hurt someone or I'm going to do something really bad or it's something that involves other people that might put you in a precarious situation, you might have a hard time saying yes. So you don't know. You're, you want to say yes, but you're like, well, there's some things that you might say that I have to do something about. So when we say let's look at ourselves, but be okay with whatever you see. That means we have to have a certain type of mindset that is non-judgmental as much as possible, that you're going to just look at what is there. What are the different thoughts, feelings that, that you have or things that you might experience? Now, going back to some things that came up with the caller about expectations and being realistic, one of the things we have to be aware of and mindful of is I was talking about the darkness of the unconscious and saying that it's not all that, but you're likely going to encounter some things as you get to understand yourself better that aren't so pleasant to get in touch with. Of course, past memories and things, those can be unpleasant, but it also might be feelings that you have presently even that you don't like. Oh, it looks like I'm actually envious of this person and it doesn't feel good. 
First of all, we might just think envy isn't a good feeling to have. We don't want to feel it. Um, then also when we feel envious of someone, we also don't like, well, it almost seems like I'm saying that person's better than me in some way. So I don't want to be envious of them. So I want to turn that off. It just doesn't feel good. So we'd rather say, no, I'm not. And that's what's very hard about trying to take a genuine look at ourselves is that some of the things will be unpleasant. So even something like envy doesn't mean it's super dark and twisted. It means you want to do something bad with that feeling, but it is a feeling that's there nonetheless that might not be so pleasant. So if we're going to look at ourselves with uh, open eyes and really a flashlight to go through and see what's there in those dark corners we haven't looked at yet, we have to be willing to encounter things that might not feel good. And then here, when I talk about expectations, it's recognizing as human beings, we're going to have a whole range of feelings, experiences, and things that maybe ideally we wouldn't want to have. Or if we asked this, do you want to be envious of this person? You'd say no. But the reality is as a human being, you're going to have feelings like envy at some point in your life, or even at any given point, we can figure out or find someone that you might have some envy towards. And even envy, um, just a little side tangent, it's not all bad either. There is a type of toxic or negative energy where envy where you want something bad to happen to the person who you're envious of because you feel like you can't have what they have. But there can also be a more positive type of envy that encourages you to go have or go towards the thing that that person has. So you see the person has um, done some hard work or, oh, they've, you know, you'll see a lot of things uh, online with like working out or something like that. And so you can have the negative envy of, I hope something happens to that person because I can never be that. Or you might be encouraged and you want, wow, look at that person. They, they worked hard to get healthier. I want to do that too for myself. It can even be positive in that way that encourages you to do a good thing. So comparisons tend to be bad, but it doesn't have to always be bad depending on how we uh, internalize it. Is it a we judge ourselves or we judge them in a way we hope something bad happens to them or we give up on ourselves or shame ourselves? Or is it, you know what, I want to I want to go towards that. So we can have a more positive way of even looking at that. But if I'm willing to look at everything, there has to be the sense of acceptance of myself. That self-acceptance is really important. So something we need to have is a sense of self-acceptance. Just like if you're going back to the last segment, if you want to hear someone's story and you want to make them feel comfortable to open up, you have to be accepting and not judging them in what they're saying. So if you're ready to judge them, they're going to close up. If you show them, I'm open to hearing whatever you have to say, that makes them more comfortable. And so if we're working with ourselves or trying to understand ourselves, that same mindset applies. I'm going to, whatever it is, I want to understand myself better. I'm sure there's some things that won't be so pleasant to get in touch with, but that's okay. And so here, what I often see people um, get in the way when we're talking about the judgment, it's not just the judging, but it's this idealized version or vision of themselves, you know, and this is also something I think you will see in pop psychology or, um, Instagram type of psychology at times, this sense of, well, why should you ever feel this way? There's no reason to feel X or feel this way and feel this bad feeling. Oh, you know, guilt is just a waste of time. And I don't agree with that at all. I think actually there's a very healthy guilt if you do something wrong that you should experience. If you don't, you're actually a psychopath. It's a very bad thing. But because something feels bad, at times the advice people give is, and you'll see this a lot, is giving you advice to tell you you shouldn't feel that bad thing you felt. And there can be times when 
having perspective on things and recognizing our thoughts affects our feelings. I definitely believe in that. But I do think there is an over-reliance um, or overly people will, will talk about these ways to just get rid of bad feelings without recognizing that they actually can be quite healthy. Maybe there's something that should be there. So if we focus on this, what I want to be, and I want to be someone who never gets jealous, never envious, why would I have guilt? Why would I have regrets? Then you're not going to actually be very good at understanding yourself better to see those things that will definitely exist. You're going to have all those things within you if you take a genuine look at yourself. The whole range of human emotions you've experienced or will experience at some time. So if you want to take a look at yourself, but you never want to have a feeling that you feel bad about this kind of like meta feeling, then you're not going to be taking a look at yourself at all. Because I see it happen all the time in therapy. We're talking about, okay, this, oh, looks like, do you think you might've been jealous about this? No, 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 no. Why would I be, why would I be jealous? Jealousy is stupid or it's a waste of time or it's weak. That's something you often will hear about jealousy or a lot of feeling sadness also can feel weak to people. And so that person will feel totally blocked or resisting getting in touch or being aware of that feeling consciously and acknowledging it consciously. Doesn't mean it disappears and doesn't exist because they might reflect it in other ways. They won't acknowledge they're jealous, but they might try to control their partner around whatever that situation or thing is or talk negatively about it. And, oh, no, no, it's, and they won't acknowledge it's about jealousy. It just is what they're, they're saying their opinion on on something. And so this is why making our feelings that are unconscious conscious can be valuable is that when they remain unconscious, they can negatively impact our lives without our awareness and in that way without our control. We don't even know what's going on. We're not conscious at least steering the ship of our life. The unconscious is steering and then we see our hands in a certain place on the wheel and we say, yeah, yeah no, I want it to be going this way. So when people are, for example, in their relationships, not aware that something in their past is affecting the types of partners they get attracted to, the red flags they ignore and even run towards, the unhealthy relationships they go towards and the healthy relationships they might even go away from or even getting close that they might go away from, they're not aware that their unconscious is dictating their life, is creating their life. Uh, I think it's a quote by Jung that when the... Um, if the you know unconscious remains unconscious, uh, it'll dictate your life, but you'll call it fate. And so you'll hear, and that's not the exact quote, but that's the essentially some elements of it. But that's what people tend to do. Like, oh, I keep dating you know these girls that are this way, and I keep dating these guys that are this way. It's just my luck, right? Or or we tend to think all men or all women are this way because we keep having these experiences that seem to confirm this thing that we feel inside or have internalized in some way and we think it's just our luck or fate that we keep doing that not realizing well why do you think you keep getting attracted to these people and you're attracting these kinds of people because both happen no no it's not nothing i couldn't have known i hear that a lot too because people say well no i could have known that she was this way because when we first started dating she didn't show that side or i couldn't tell he would be like this he didn't show that until you know one month in and that's usually the case. First of all, people don't show you their worst qualities on their first dates, but are unconscious because it's feeling things in that in a feeling way. It doesn't mean it has a checkpoint. It can just feel some type of attraction to someone, and we won't know why, but it's because they're something that we're used to seeing or something we've experienced in the past. So we're drawn to them. We say, no, it's just this feeling of being drawn to them.
And this is actually why, especially if you've had an unhealthy childhood with a lot of dysfunction in your parents, um, you didn't have a good relationship with your parents. If you find yourself head over heels for someone you just met or have that love at first sight feeling, it usually means they're a really bad person for you because they're triggering and bringing up all this stuff from your past, which is an unhealthy past that makes you feel drawn to them. When you say, I feel like I've known this person for so long, it's not because you've known that person for so long, you've known that personality type for so long or those characteristics for so long. And unfortunately, that so long was so painful. It was something very bad. And you're drawn to them and feel like they're the one, but they're the one you need to run away from, the one that's going to hurt you. So actually, what we think we're supposed to be looking for, which is that head over heels, love at first sight feeling, tends to be coming from a bad place, especially if what you've experienced in your childhood was bad relationships with your parents. That voice that's telling you to go towards something, it's the wrong voice to be listening to. It's telling you exactly the wrong way to go. So we, we want to be curious about ourselves. And just like we need to be non-judgmental with others in order to be genuinely curious and to explore what is there in them and to allow for them to share it, the same thing is true of us. If you want to truly understand yourself and to genuinely be curious of yourself, you have to start with a non-judgmental and accepting attitude that I'm going to see some things I don't like, but that's okay. I'm a human and I know there's going to be some feelings that I'd rather not have and thoughts and desires that maybe I am not so comfortable with. But because I'm a human being and I'm giving myself the space to be human, that's okay. I want to know myself better to then learn from what's there and to live a life I feel better about in the long term. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Changing gears a bit, I, I talked to, about parenting, but this is even more specific on a, a parenting topic about giving advice and giving space for choices with our kids. Um, when we're looking at any role that we have, any position we have, anything that we're doing, our expectations, our goals are going to be critical in determining what we do and what we don't do and how we approach the task. And so I've said often that when we're parenting our kids, we don't want to focus on just removing their pain. And sometimes that's how parents approach the task. We instead want to help them to grow into the best version of themselves that they can be, the best child and young adult and grown up that they can become, which actually means we have to allow them to face discomforts. Now, another area this shows up, not just in, for example, not uh, making them do work or do certain things is about making choices. Often parents will say, well, if I know better than my child, shouldn't I tell them what to do or make the decision for them? So it's related to this avoiding of pain where it's like, okay, well, if I know they do this thing, they might get hurt. Or if they do it the way I'm going to say it feels better or they have a better experience, shouldn't I make the decision for them? And so, of course, like anything, it's not going to be black and white. Sometimes it might be the case that we, we intervene or we, we do something. But overall, when we consider the mindset, we have to think, okay, what am I trying to help my child do or become or experience? If the question is just, okay, I don't want my child to feel pain, then yes. Um, if you know better, which even that, of course, is debatable. You might think you know better. You will make those decisions for them. But if I want to help my child to become a strong person that can trust themselves, rely on themselves, 
um, also go through the process of making decisions and then living with and facing the consequences of that decision and then learning from it, then a very different mindset and different attitude and different behaviors will then come into play where I recognize the significance, significant um, outcome here isn't, let's say, the result. Did they feel good? The significant outcome is what was their experience and what did they get from that experience? So your, your child, for example, is picking something to wear. Now, sometimes we think, well, this is stylish and I'm going to pick out a nice set of clothes for them that looks good and it's trendy and, you know, all these things, whatever it might be for you. So you, you pick that out. But they say, I want, to wear, well, I want to wear something else. And that's something else you doesn't look as good and you're worried they might get embarrassed or made fun of or just doesn't look good. And you might even be right from some kind of a objective perspective, even some kind of fashion experts would agree your outfit is better than theirs looks better. But if we emphasize just that result that, okay, what are they going to wear and possible reactions of people, we're missing the bigger picture of, can I help my child learn that they can rely on themselves, that they can make a decision? Even how you respond to their decisions is important. So often parents, their kids will say, I want to do this. Like, what? No, no, don't, no, don't do that. Do it this way. And so we just focus on what's the, what we think right way of doing the thing rather than helping our child recognize that they can make decisions on their own and to learn from them. What I see parents do a lot of times is make decisions for their kids, tell them, do this, don't do that. No, what are you thinking? Don't do it that way. You don't know this is the right way. Do all sorts of things that take away their power in making decisions and then wonder why does my child, as they get older, doubt themselves and not have self-esteem and self-confidence and not make good decisions for themselves. Well, the reason is that you haven't given them the experience of making decisions and you haven't instilled the confidence in them that they make good decisions. You've told them to doubt themselves. Um, it, it's similar to when I see parents say, I want my child to stand up for themselves. I don't want them to be passive. Let's say if the teacher says something and they disagree, I want them to stand up to themselves. But then if you ask them, well, can your child stand up to you comfortably? They'll often realize, no, that they can't. If they say something to me, if they disagree, I get mad or I snap at them or I tell them, you know, I'm your mom or I'm your dad. So you have to listen to me. So how can we expect that if we don't model and give them that space to challenge the authority or to share their opinion, even if it disagrees with the authority, how can we expect them to then go out in the world and act that way? So really, it's not that we want them to stand up for themselves. We don't want them to stand up to us, but we want them to stand up to everyone else. And that's not going to work. So if we want to teach our children that they can make good decisions, we have to give them the space to make decisions even when they're bad decisions. To say, okay, well, what do you want to do? I want to do this. And you might be pretty sure, maybe you think you even know, that it's going to not go so well. You have to get out of their way. As I said, yes, of course, in some cases you will intervene. It's not black and white like any type of a thing. But overall, we would want that our perspective or our position to be, I want to give you the space to make your decisions, not just because I want to let you make those decisions, but I want you to, sh to show you that I have confidence in you to make your decisions so that you then have confidence in yourself to make those decisions. We help give our child their self-concept, how they see themselves, how they view themselves. This is why as we get older, you oftentimes will realize the ways that ways that you judge yourself, good and bad, are the ways that your parents judge yourself, 
judged you, good or bad. You'll remember the criticisms they said or the ways they put you down about certain things or made you feel uncomfortable about certain things. And now even if you have you know, no relationship, they're dead, whatever the case may be, you've internalized those voices to live on to judge you. So as parents, we have to be very aware of the ways we talk to our kids and make them feel about themselves and who they are. If you show them that you don't know how to make a good choice, you don't know what you're thinking or what you're doing, they'll internalize that and think, oh, yeah, no, I don't know what to do. I, I should doubt myself. My parents made it very clear that I shouldn't know uh, what to do, and they always told me what to do, and I, they got it right, and I didn't know. And some parents will emphasize that. See, I told you not to do this, and I told you to do that, and see how much better it went. And so the focus is just on that specific outcome of that situation, and if we're being real with ourselves, to show how good we are. Do you see? I knew. Did you see that I knew that this was better? And I told you to do it. See, always listen to mom or always listen to dad. I know what's best. And so, well, now how are they supposed to live their life? Even if you're right, let's say you're the best at making decisions. How are they supposed to go out and live their life as they get older and when they have to make more important decisions about careers and who to date or get married to? Not only that, when we look at how most decisions go and how they're made, the most critical component is that individual. Even if we say what's the right thing to wear or right thing to eat or right thing to study, I did say something like even objectively with fashion or whatever it might be, but really the most important ingredient when we figure out what to do is what you want. What movie should you see? Well, I can tell you one that I thought was very good, but one, it might not be a movie you like, even if I liked it, and two, you might not be in the... the feeling or the mood for that kind of a movie anyway. So for me to tell you is not going to actually allow you to make the best decision, which is you have to see what movie you want to see. Or if you want to pick what you're going to wear, uh, I was talking about style, but even let's say about how hot or cold it is, you know your body and how you respond to the temperature. Some people know I get cold very easily, so I better wear a sweater and a beanie and a jacket. Some people know they might not get as cold so they can wear less and be okay. You can't tell them what they need to wear. And so if we do that as parents, they no, no, you have to wear this and this and this and this. Don't even pay attention to what your body is telling you. The child is going to learn that they don't know what their body is telling them or to listen to that voice. And this is what so many of us unfortunately experience in our life is that when we're very young, we're very connected to that voice. And essentially a baby only has that voice. It just feels things and reacts to that. They feel hungry, they cry, or they're cold, and they cry, or they need to be changed, and they cry. They don't really know, but that's just all they can experience. In that sense, it's out of the limit. It's not that they're so zen and mindful, but they really can't process much else but those things. And as we get older, we still are in touch with that as, as very young children. But what we do as, as parents, as society, we start to detach that voice from the self, or to make people doubt that voice, or it becomes more and more quiet to the point where we don't even hear it because we don't think it has any value. And so people will be in therapy and we'll ask them what they feel and very often they don't know because they've become so detached from themselves. And so this is what I was alluding to. I don't think I quite even finished the point earlier that when we think about ourselves, we're like, well, of course I know me. But we see that people even sometimes and very often actually won't know what they're even feeling in a given moment or about something. And so a big part of that is we've learned to detach from ourselves and who we are and what we're feeling, which really is the most important thing. 
So when we ask someone what they want to eat or what they want to watch or what song they like, we can't make that decision for them. I can't tell you, you like this song. I can say, I think this song is amazing and I think you'll like it and I'll play it for you. But then you have to have your own response to the song that then will determine if you like it or not. I can't tell you, you will like it or that this is the song for you. But often as parents, when we think so much, I don't want my kid to be in pain or uncomfortable or feel something bad, we can try to make too many decisions for them, thinking it's coming from a good place. Most of the ways that parents hurt their children, almost all of them, come from a very, very good place. We, we think we're loving them, but we're doing something that actually hurts them in some way. And unfortunately, it sometimes hurts them in a way that's more in the future. So in the moment, we get positive reinforcement. They felt kind of bad. We did something. It seems like they feel better. That seems like the right strategy. But unfortunately, we don't recognize often the ways we interfere with their growth, with their overall well-being, with being in touch with themselves in some ways that will interfere with them. So ask yourself as a parent, when you look at your kids, how much space do I give them to make choices for them? How much respect do I give to their choices? How much do I make them feel like they should doubt themselves? Or how much do I actually make them feel like they should have confidence and believe in themselves and what they want to do? And as I mentioned before, we also can help them make their own decisions and then live with the consequences and deal with those consequences. Okay, you decided not to do your homework and now you go and you got a bad grade. How does that feel? And then what did you learn from it? What do you want to do? And let them go through that experience like, oh yeah, that wasn't good. I, I don't feel good right now. And I don't like this feeling and I don't want to have this feeling. So what can I learn and what should I do from that? But if we just say, no, no, you're going to want to do this and we do it for them so that they don't feel bad tomorrow, we unfortunately get in the way of a big lesson that will actually help them grow and learn from it. So give your kids the space to make choices. Give your kids the confidence in their choices so they don't start to doubt themselves and so that for the rest of their lives, rather than making a decision that's good for them then, help them to become good decision makers that believe in themselves so they can make good decisions for the rest of their lives. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I wanted to look at a, another aspect of the parent-child relationship. Really, it's related to, um, it could be part of all relationships, but this is focusing on either blame or going back to that term of understanding, this concept of trying to understand what's going on. And so often we find ourselves in arguments, discussions, very common with husbands and wives about looking at who's to blame here. You did this. No, 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 no. You did that. Or you started it. Or you were the one that made me do this. And these kinds of conversations almost never get anywhere because we get focused on who was right and who was wrong or who was more wrong. Who do we blame for what happened? And with that, someone wins and someone loses. And so anytime we enter a conversation with a loved one where we're looking for a winner and a loser, we're both going to lose because whoever wins, they win, but they're going to win alone away from their partner rather than going towards their partner and having a conversation that's constructive. And so the reason why I bring this up in the parent-child dynamic is that most people, as they get older, they start to get more perspective on their own childhood and have some understanding of what they went through. And so there are some phases and stages that people tend to go through. Some people will be in a denial for their whole life, which 
obviously won't be healthy. It goes back to what I was saying before, that there are, there are things that they will unconsciously carry forward with them that will affect their lives and their relationships. But m- most people have some level of awareness of what happened in their childhood and the ways they might have been hurt in their childhood. And for many, this could be a rude awakening, the sense like, oh, wow, like, yeah, my parents did this, or now I'm more aware of what they did, or, you know, they treat me this way, and now I realize that was not okay, or they would treat me and my siblings differently, and I always thought it was about me, that I was the bad one or something was wrong with me, and now I realize, wait a second, no, that was just their issue. They were doing something that wasn't about me, it was about them. And so usually when we come to terms with this, we might have already felt the pain because you were down about it, maybe you were down that you thought it was your fault that you were getting mistreated or treated differently than your siblings. Um, But now we usually find ourselves angry, which is an understandable next step. Because if you've been hurting and hurt for a long time, and it's possibly continuing to hurt you in your life, and you thought it was your fault, but now it turns out actually it might have been someone else's fault, so here we're focused on blame, we'll be very mad at that person who should have had the responsibility the whole time. So we'll see that people go through this process of when they become aware of something and that their parents might have done things that didn't feel good to them, they'll be very angry. And it's an understandable place to start with, but we definitely don't want to stay there and end there because staying in that anger won't allow for us to uh, deal with and accept what happened in our past to repair or build uh, the relationships we have with our parents and then to move forward in a place where we're more at peace with what happened to us in our childhood. Because we can't change what happened in our past and we can't change what happened in our childhood, but we can definitely change how we feel about our past and what's happened in our childhood. The events won't change, but the feelings we have, even the story or the way we think and feel about the story can definitely change over time. So first we're in this angry state and sometimes we might even go tell our parents. And so there's a lot of these types of confrontations. Like, you did this and that, you, you know, I can't believe you did that. And now I realize how wrong it was or how bad it was and all these things. And, you know, parents might, depending on who they are, but they're usually not going to respond too great to that because that's a tough thing to respond to. But, you know, maybe they'll say, no, you're wrong or you remembered it wrong. Or even if there's some level of acknowledgement, we didn't know any better. How could we know? Various responses come up. And usually this kind of conversation might be something that opens things up, but it's not going to be the one that gets to a better place. So hopefully the parents at least acknowledge something, some level of doing wrong, doing something that wasn't good. But more important than that is coming to the pain that the child has experienced, even if they're an adult now, the ways that they were hurt. And so it can be very difficult to move away from the blame game and the blame conversation of, see, you were wrong. And even sometimes it becomes, no, no, you were actually such a bad kid or such a difficult kid. We had to be this way with you or, you know, going back to personalizing and blaming the child uh, for what the parents did. I highly recommend you not to do that. Uh, But nonetheless, when we stay in the blame focus, we're not going to get to a resolution. We're not going to get very far. Because the most important thing when we look at what's happened is the experience, the pain, the things that that child went through. Even if the parent had good intentions, it doesn't mean the pain or the result aren't real. But sometimes we tie the two together so much that we think they go hand in hand. So it's like, oh, no, it wasn't my fault, so you can't be upset or you can't be hurt. But that's not how these things work. Uh, The analogy I, I like to use to illustrate this is let's say... Parents, they love their kids, 
They're making snacks for their kids every day and they say, oh, it's good to have fruits. So they put a bunch of fruits and berries and strawberries and apples and things like that. And the kids are eating it every day. Now, it turns out one of the kids has a mild allergy to strawberries that was actually hurting them in a way. They got hurt over time by having the strawberries every day. And as they got older, they realized this. Now, we can see that we can't blame the parents. It makes a lot of sense. The parents thought, I'm giving you a fruit that's a good one. It's a healthy one. It's recommended. See, look, doctors even told us to give you that fruit. If we focus on just the blame, then the parents just want to say, no, we're off the hook. We didn't do anything wrong. But the more important things to look at, well, let's look at the damage it caused the child's body or whatever those consequences were. What was that pain? That's really the most important thing. Or another way of looking at this when we focus on the blame game is like the house is burning down and two people are fighting about who left the stove on. Well, we got to put the fire out first. That's the thing that matters. That's the pain that is real, that is causing some kind of damage. We want to go there. And so we can have a conversation that goes more towards understanding the pain and the consequences rather than the blame will do much better and get to a much better place or have the potential to get to a much better place. Uh, if I do take a step back, though, as parents, I hope you can recognize, even when we look at blame, it doesn't mean to say you didn't do anything wrong or couldn't have done anything better. And if we are being realistic with ourselves and also um, realistic with the situation, of course, as a parent, there's so many things you could have done better, so many things you did wrong, so many things you would hopefully want to do differently if you can go back and do it again just because it's the hardest thing you can do. It's incredibly challenging. There is no perfect or right way to do things. There's no perfect and right way to know the consequences of certain things at times. Hindsight is twenty twenty. So of course, you did things that were hurtful to your child. You have to accept that. I think for many parents, they don't want to accept this. They love their kids so much and they can't even imagine that they hurt them in some way and they know they have good intentions and they, they probably do that the thought that I might have hurt my child can be so hard to tolerate that we deny our kids pain. It's like they're coughing. We say, no, no, that's just how they breathe rather than realizing they might be in pain. So it can be very helpful for your kids healing and they're just growing to become the best version of themselves. If you can take some acknowledgement for the ways that you might have hurt them in either what you did or didn't do or whatever shortcomings might've been. Um, it kind of, it helps us to have some kind of closure when the person who has hurt us or has been a big part of that hurt takes that acknowledgement. And so what we do in therapy often is help people heal their wounds that they're trying to heal on their own in the sense that the person who hurt them isn't in that process, which makes it much slower. To me, it's kind of like a wound healing with stitches or without stitches. So if you get that apology, apology and that acknowledgement, I think apologement was the combination of the two. If you get that uh, apology and acknowledgement, it's like putting stitches on the wound, which doesn't just heal it, but it can make it a lot better to heal more quickly, more cleanly, and in a better way. But when you don't get that, it's like an open wound that's just trying to heal without those stitches, that it's a messier process, it's, it's going to take longer, and might never heal as well as it could with that acknowledgement from that person. It is so powerful when someone who's hurt us tells us that they recognize, they acknowledge, and they apologize for what they did. 
So as a parent, it's again, not to focus on the blame part, but to be realistic, we have to accept that there's ways that we've hurt the person that we love the most, or we had to take care of, or we're most responsible for, just inevitably by being parents and being human. So it doesn't mean you're bad parents. This is where I really like the term good enough mothering by Winnicott, that you're a good enough parent. So you were good enough still means you made mistakes. And the more you can live up and acknowledge them, actually you become even better as a parent by being realistic with them, that you should have that expectation. Of course, I made mistakes. And a note about that, because a lot of times uh, parents and people in general, but especially we'll see this in the parent-child dynamic, will make a very generic general apology which doesn't have a lot of weight. So when you say, of course I did things wrong, I'm not perfect, and I'm sure I could have done things better. That's nice, but it feels very generic because it just seems like you're trying to look good or sound good, but not actually talk about anything specific. Because often people will say that, but then the child will bring something up and they say, oh, no, no, that was fine, or that was this way, or that's not one of the things I did wrong. And so when it comes to the specifics, they'll deny any of them as being wrong because then they have to sit with it and a real way, but in a generic, general way, they say, of course, I made mistakes, I'm human, I'm sure I did a lot of things wrong, I didn't know any better. So be aware of your apologies, wherever it is that you're making it to, but parents, this comes up a lot with kids and kids as they become adults, that it's not just in some generic blanket way, because that's almost like you're saying, I want blanket immunity. So I'm apologizing for, I did things wrong, I'm apologizing, so it's done. No, if you really want to work through it, or you're going to have to be more specific and get into what actually happened, not just say it in some general way. But so I do encourage people to look at what they've done, but also let the person tell you that is hurting what they have gone through and try to understand how can I first understand the pain and the things that I might have done that they didn't like, and then respond to it in a way that shows I understand, I acknowledge, and I apologize for any ways that I hurt them. And that will really be the best thing that anyone could experience to help heal the things that have happened in their past. And then for the children, whether you're younger or adult, if you're going to your parents, of course, as I said, likely at the beginning, the first conversations like this will have a lot of anger because you've just shifted from blaming yourself and feeling bad and thinking there's something wrong with you to thinking, oh no, they were the problem. So there's going to be a lot of this emphasis on the blame and to take the blame away from yourself and put it on them. But hopefully once some of that anger has been worked through or you've released it or uh, dealt with it in some way, you can move away from a conversation that focuses on blame and who was so wrong or so bad and focuses on the pain you did go through, letting them know what it was like and what hurt and how it hurt um, in as much of a way that makes it about let's look at what happened rather than punish someone or make someone feel bad. And this type of a conversation can lead to much more understanding and much more healing. That if your parent doesn't feel like they're being attacked for what happened, they're much more likely to be open. They still might not be, but they'll be much more likely to be open to what you have to say about what you experienced as a child and what they did. And this theme extends to really all of our conversations. It's very common with friends, with a family, but definitely with Um, romantic partners as well, that something happens, something goes wrong, some kind of disagreement comes out, and it becomes all about blaming who is wrong and who is more right and who's the better partner and the worst partner. And when we have those conversations, we don't get to a better place. Let's try to understand what happened. Let's try to understand that, of course, we make mistakes in all our relationships. 
I was just talking about parenting, but of course as romantic partners as well, to try to get what did I do that I could do better and learn from? How did what I do affect my partner? How can I acknowledge and apologize for the parts that I had, my responsibility, and whatever happened? And let's focus away from blame and guilt and trying to prove who was wrong and judge each other and more towards understanding um, each other, learning from it and going to a better place. Let's learn from what happened in this negative experience to have less of those and have better experiences going forward. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. Again, no show Monday for the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Zan Zendegi Azadi. Thank mm-hmm. you.